Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. Hey, good morning. My name's Chuck. For those who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. Was anybody ready for winter? Well, neither was I. <laughs> but I'm, uh, I'm grateful for being able to gather. I don't, I don't know if you sense this, but just being able to be with God's people uh, creates a warmth for me. <laughs> and so to be able to sing together this morning was, was really uh, edifying. I love that we get to do that week in and week out. Hey, we um, are in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'm just going to jump right in. I'm so excited to be able to share the Word of God with you today, and I hope you brought your Bible. So why don't we go ahead and take those out. If you didn't uh, bring a Bible, that's okay. There are Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you that you can grab, and if you're in one of those Bibles, the page number that you're on is page 933. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 today, and we have been in a series in 1 Corinthians all year. And guys, we're going to finish this up in three weeks. It's pretty great. So um, what Paul is talking about here is the resurrection. And we're going to spend three weeks in the resurrection. And Jeff kicked us off last week, Pastor Jeff. And, and what he said, what he said Paul was saying here is that he didn't want those who followed Christ to believe the gospel in vain. He didn't want us to believe the gospel in vain. And here's, here's the thing, and I, th I think about this every time I preach. I never want to stand up and preach a message that somebody else needs more than me. <laughs> like, that makes me sick to my stomach. And I just want to tell you why, why I need this message this week. I want to tell you what the scripture has done to me. And I don't know if this is true for you, but I have the ability, living in the comfort of the Western world, to gloss over the fact that death is present in this world. And I can pretend, I don't know if this is you, but I can pretend it doesn't exist unless, unless it comes up and it bites me. And the pain and the suffering and the hurt, when it, when it gets close to me sometimes, I can see it as an inconvenience to my end goal of simply enjoying life comfortably and casually, or rather to quote Paul in verse 32 of this chapter, rather just eating and drinking. I'm just eating and drinking, just living for this life only. And what Paul says is that if we're living for this life only, we're wasting our time. We're wasting our time. He says, don't believe the gospel in vain. Kenneth Bailey uh, says this. I love this. He says, the resurrection, the resurrection is the difference between hopeless end and endless hope. Hopeless end and endless hope. The difference between Living for today, hopeless end, and living for the resurrected king. Endless hope. And if you're following along in your notes, an inadequate view of the resurrection leads to futile living. Listen, if you hear one thing today, hear this. The resurrection is real, and the resurrection matters. An inadequate view of the resurrection leads to futile living. Paul wrote this section in this letter for those in Corinth who didn't necessarily believe Jesus rose from the dead. They thought perhaps maybe his spirit rose. Maybe it was resuscitation. Maybe this is just spiritual transformation. No, no, no. Paul says this is bodily resurrection. And so he spends the first part and the third part of this section of the letter just questioning, just reasoning, 
just wrestling with the Corinthians who believe. He said, guys, let's think this out. He just questions this and this and this. And in the middle of those two sections, he proclaims what he believes. And here's the question he wants to ask us and you, because he wrote to those in the church, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And how would you know? And Paul wants to show us that this will change the way that you exist in the middle of the mess of this world. I read a stat this week. This is the same for Europe as it is the U.S., that 65% of active Christians don't believe in the resurrection. 65%. 40% of all Christians don't believe in it. 20% of the general public. One of the members of a local church in the area where this story uh, was, was told and captioned, these stats captured, he said this, and I quote, you're talking about adults here. He said, an adult faith requires that Christian belief be constantly questioned and constantly reinterpreted because science and intellectual and philosophical thought have progressed. And what's happening in Corinth is not much different than what's happening in our day. And here's what I want to say if you're following along. The resurrection... Here's the deal with the resurrection. It both defies and demands logic. It both defies and demands logic. The fact that dead people don't rise from the grave, that's not a new thing. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just not sure that in AD 33, people weren't smart enough yet to know that dead people didn't rise from the grave. You know what I'm talking about? Like, as if we've progressed so much in philosophical and technological and all these thoughts that now we know that dead people don't rise from the grave. It defies logic. It defies logic. It has ever since, ever since, it's defied logic ever since Thomas, the day after the resurrection happened, said, look, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I put my finger where the nails were, unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. No progress in philosophy or science or technology changes this. I tell you what changes this, faith changes this. Faith, a deep conviction of faith. And Paul knew this when he said, he said things. He said things like, we look not to things that are seen, we look to things that are unseen. Paul said, we walk by faith and not by sight. He said, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? And when Paul was on the road to Damascus, he received a vision and he believed it. Lord, give us modern people faith like that. Not faith in ourselves, faith to believe. But Paul also knew that the resurrection demands logic, didn't he? He knew this. He knew it both defies and demands logic because if it only defied logic, then we'd all just sit around and be like, well, one day my grandma told me that Jesus rose from the dead and it sounded good to me and I just believe it because it feels right. Now, now that is not what Paul's saying at all. Paul has a deep conviction of faith and he doesn't have all the answers, but he also has a deep conviction to convince And he's a pretty convincing guy. And he's a very smart man. And he lays out some of the most beautiful prose in this section of scripture. A rhetorical masterpiece, some scholars have put it. A series of if-then, if-then statements. And I wish I had more time just to show us the beauty of the way it's laid out. 
But here's what I want us to know. Paul was inspired by Jesus. Paul was inspired. And he was transformed. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was of the people of Israel. He was a persecutor of the church. He stood by as Christians were martyred. And now he says, whatever gain, and he was at the top. He climbed the ladder to the top. He says, whatever gain I have, I count as loss for the sake of knowing the resurrected Christ. Jesus inspires people who inspire people, who inspire people, who inspire people. And Paul was inspired by Jesus. Are you inspired by Jesus? Does he move you deeply? Does his resurrection influence you at a deep level? This is what Paul wants to ask us today. And here's what he writes, starting in verse 12. You can follow along in your Bibles. He writes, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, because that's what we've been preaching the whole time, right? That he was crucified, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again. That's what we've been preaching. That's what they passed on to me. That's what I passed on to you. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? How can you say this? Look, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. And more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Look, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Seven things Paul lays out. Boom, 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 boom. He says, look, look, if there's no resurrection from the dead, well, number one, Christ hasn't been raised. His body's still in a grave somewhere. And then our preaching is useless. Like, what am I doing here? Why are we even gathered? And our faith is empty and we're liars because we all say he rose from the dead. We're liars and we're trapped in our sin. And those who have died are lost forever, hopeless end, and we're without hope. We're most to be pitied. This is pathetic. So he, then he goes on and he skips, right, to verse 29. Two, two sections where he's just reasoning. Reasoning, he's saying, hey, think this out with me. And he says in 29, he says, if the dead are not raised, then why are people baptized for them? And I'll tell you, this verse threw me at first, right? Like, what's he talking about here in verse 29? And uh, think of it this way. Uh, if me and my wife, Lisa, let's say that she's a believer and I'm not a believer, and she passes away, and I want to see her again, so therefore, I get baptized so I can see her again. Does that make sense? Apparently, some of these people, they believe this, but they didn't believe in the resurrection, but they believe this. And Paul's like, what gives with that? That, that doesn't make sense. He says, do we, do we just want resurrection to be true for our benefit? Or do we believe the resurrection is true to the core? That's a great question to be answered. Just for our benefit, or do we believe it to our core? And so in verse 30, he says, why am I endangering 
myself. Why are, we, why are we doing this? Shipwrecks, trials, beatings, imprisonments, and continued arguments with you people, right? The Corinthians, like, like the church plans aren't going fantastic. Like, what, why is he giving himself to all this? What am I doing? If Christ is not raised, look, what are we giving our life to? If this is just for this world, if his body is still in the ground somewhere, but he gave some really great advice, like, let's get coffee, Let's talk about it as if any other historical figure. No, no. He said he was the son of God. He claimed to be God in the flesh. So as C.S. Lewis has always said, he's crazy or he's risen. It's one of the two. Think with me on this. Think with me. It's the, it's the man's logic. Resurrection matters. And it's if Paul is saying, wake up, church. Wake up. Because Jesus Christ has defeated death and he's risen from the grave and this matters more than anything. You know, there were, there were all kinds of uh, messianic pretenders in Jesus' day. History records over 18 of these guys, people who wanted to revolt against Rome. They wanted to be out from under the oppression of the Roman Empire because oppression is great when you're on the right side of it. And so there were false messiahs that rose up. And we read about this even in Acts 5. You can read about this. It names Theodos and Judas. And do you know what happened to Theodos and Judas? They were captured. They were crucified. And their followers were dispersed. This is what Rome did best. Captured, crucified, Followers dispersed, and they would line the roads with these people, these resurrectionists, these people who wanted to defy a false messiahs. They'd line the roads with the crucifixions of these people. They were captured, they were crucified, their followers were dispersed. And so Jesus was captured, he was crucified, and his followers were dispersed to an upper room somewhere, huddling in fear. And now, He's the most famous person to ever live. <laughs> what do you do with that? What do you do with that? A hundred years after he's, after all this happens, his influence greater than when he died. A hundred years later. This is the opposite of how usually we build a reputation and then the reputation goes like this. For Jesus, it's like a hundred years, greater influence. Five hundred years, greater influence. A thousand years, his legacy lays the foundation for a continent, friends. For a continent. And two thousand years later, he has more followers and more places than ever. He never CEO'd a company. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never led an army. We don't even know what he looked like. We have no idea what he looked like. And, and there's more art and more sculptures and more paintings. What do you do with that? Paul, think this out. I was thinking about this this week. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of Jesus' disciples? He's like, hey, follow me. And they're like, man, what are we signing up for here? Like, we didn't know we were signing up to have our mug all over the world for eternity. I mean, they're the most popular. They're painted more than anyone. What do you do with that? His influence has felt the world over, and he changed the lives of the apostle John, Peter, James, Paul. We've talked about this, and here's what this stands on, friends. Here's what it stands on, a historical event. That's what's unique to our faith, a historical event. Jesus' claims stand on the fact of his bodily resurrection. 
Jesus' claims stand on the fact of his bodily resurrection. It defies and it demands logic. And Paul's saying, hey, hey, what do you do with this? Think about this. Think it through. The resurrection matters. It matters for a whole mess of reasons I wish I could get into today. I'll just give you a few of them here that I can't get into, but it validates the uniqueness of Jesus. It matters because it confirms the achievement of Jesus on the cross. It matters because it means that Jesus can be known today. It matters because sin and death has been conquered and we are set free. It matters, it matters, it matters. Here's what I want to spend the rest of the time talking about today. That it matters because it initiates God's kingdom come in this world through his people. It restores our calling in the midst of a broken world. It ignites a revolution. That's what I want to talk about for the next 20 minutes or so. Can you guys in? In? Okay. So why don't we read together off of our notes here this uh, passage. We read with starts, but Christ, okay? But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Okay. So we've got to do a little bit thinking. We've got to do a little thinking right now. I'm going to hit the pause button, and we're going to step out of 1 Corinthians. We're going to do some thinking. Everybody's good with thinking on Sunday. Everybody's tracking with me. And just to make sure, I want you to say out loud, full voice, I love the Old Testament. Come on, say it louder. I love the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. Perfect, because Paul loves the Old Testament. He loves the Old Testament. Some people don't love the Old Testament, but Paul loves it. You know, Paul quotes the Old Testament almost 183 times in his writing. And this passage today is another example of how much Paul loves the Old Testament. For Paul, the Old Testament is pointing forward, always forward, finishing the story completing the story of of what God intended to do all along. So if anyone ever asks you, hey, why do you give the Old Testament credibility? Why do you do that? You say, hey, Paul did. He quotes it 180 times. That's free. You can do that. You can do that at lunch today, okay? So if you love the Old Testament, then you may have heard of the cultural mandate. Has anyone heard of the cultural mandate? If you know the scripture reference for the cultural mandate, just yell it out. Anybody? It's in Genesis Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It's called the cultural mandate. It's a very important piece of scripture. We're going to put it up on the screen here, and I'm going to read it. And I want you to just pay attention to the language here. It's very important. Beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1, 26. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Pay attention to these words. So they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind, creation created in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them to to reflect himself. And he said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth And subdue it. Sorry, I gave you guys too much in the back. My fault. He said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. He said, rule over it. Okay, so in other words, what God is saying here, 
What's going on is God created man to reflect his image in creation and rule over and care for the earth just the way that God would, to bring light into dark, to bring hope into the world. This has been our calling since the beginning of scripture. This is what we've been assigned to do. This is our mandate, okay? I'm gonna put another scripture up on the screen here. We're going somewhere with this, okay? It's just staying in there. This is Psalm 8. Psalm 8, starting in verse 4. Now, Paul quotes this verse in our verse today. Notice the language again. Notice the similarities. The Bible is connected, beautifully so. So Psalm 8 says, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? We're talking about man again, talking about humanity, human beings that you care for them. You have made human beings a little lower than the angels. You've crowned them with glory and honor. You've made them, here we go, rulers over the works of your hand, over your creation. This is what Paul quotes right here. You put everything under their feet. Look at the similarity here in the language. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky. Oh, heard that in Genesis. The fish in the sea. Oh, there's that. All that swim in the paths of the sea. Both referring to the role of man, his calling, his vocation. Okay, why does this matter? Why spend any time covering all that? It matters, guys. It matters because when Paul is speaking in verse 21 of our text of Adam, and in verse 22, you better believe he has the cultural mandate in mind. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, remember? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He knows the Pentateuch backward and forward. And so he knows, and he's referencing the cultural mandate. How do we know? Because he references Psalm 8 in verse 27. He says, for he has put everything under his feet to bring the idea of Psalm 8 and Genesis 1 into the picture he's painting, the role of man, his vocation, his calling from the beginning. So here's what Paul is doing. He's painting a bird's eye view, bird's eye view of the gospel, right? Okay. He's given us history. He's like, I'm going to lay it all out. And he talks about Adam Sorry for my artwork. Okay, and he talks about Jesus. Okay. And Adam brought what? Death. And Jesus brought life. But what also happened with Adam? Creation? With me? So what happens with Jesus? Recreation. Recreation. Creation, when God's people are given a calling to represent him in this world. Recreation, when God's people are given another, a new, a renewed calling to represent him in this world. See, Adam, Adam ditched his calling. We know the story. To focus on himself, to focus on what he could get, to focus on sin, to live for today. And what was the result? Just like it is today, guys, death. Death was the result, but Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? He's been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of recreation, restoration, renewal. The first fruits of all things being raised. The kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. One day it'll all be renewed, but it's already started. It's already begun. If you're following along, first fruits means more to come, so much more to come, but already begun. Listen, 
No one, no one in Israel would ever think to claim that an individual would be resurrected, resurrected in the middle of history. No one. They expected restoration to happen at the end of the age. And if someone claimed that there was restoration that happened in the middle of the age, you know what they would have said? They would have said, has disease been eradicated? Has justice broken out? Has suffering ended? No, no, no. But this is precisely what happened. Jesus is resurrected in the middle of the mess. This is huge for us. This is the difference between hope Endless hope and hopeless end. And that lived out right now. And so Paul continues to paint the picture. What is Jesus going to do in the future? He's going to hand over the kingdom to the Father. The kingdom of God to the Father. Paul, (laughs) Paul is brilliant. Paul is weaving together the story, the whole story of the Bible in eight verses here. That's what he's doing. And it's beautiful. All this here now is kingdom language. Follow with me. Verse 24, he hands the kingdom to the Father. Verse 25, he reigns until all dominion and enemies are under his feet. Verse 26, he reigns until death is defeated. And in verse 27, he quotes Psalm 8, as if to say, I'm making all things new, and you are invited to join me in the process. Jesus was always talking about the kingdom of God when he came on the scene. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The time's now. The time is now. It has come. Repent. Change your mind about living for yourself, about living for this day, and believe that I'm the life and the resurrection. He invites us to reign with him, to be heirs with him. And instead, you know what I want to do? Impress people. I want to impress people. I do. And I want to gain power in this world. And I want to acquire all kinds of junk that I'm not going to be able to keep. For what? Jesus empowered 12 disciples, just like he empowers every disciple that comes since, to imitate him in bringing hope into the world. And he's been crucified and resurrected, not just to save us, but to send us to send us, not just to save us from the bondage of sin and death. That's good. But to send us as a kingdom of priests. Jesus fulfilled what God intended for man all along, if you're following along. Jesus fulfilled what God intended for man all along. The resurrection matters for many reasons. But what Paul is arguing in this passage is that it matters because we've been set free to bring the kingdom in the middle of the mess. That's what we exist for. As children of God, bring the kingdom in the middle of the mess. And it is a mess, isn't it? It is a mess. Let's not pretend it isn't. I put together pictures this week, and I do this often, um, not put together pictures, but I, I try to keep things in front of me that remind me that the world's bigger than my front stoop and my cul-de-sac and my little life. And there's a battle that's raging 
between life and death, life and death, life and death. You know, life and death are mentioned 15 times plus in this passage. Life and death. Just look, just look at these pictures. Just let this be a reminder of God's good creation, but the death that is here at the same time. Life, but death. Life. Let's leave that one up there. Anybody feel the pull of life and death? I love this last picture. I love this because this is where we live. Life boldly existing in the middle of death. And into this darkness, we are proclaiming the resurrection of the Messiah. And by his resurrection, his rightful reign over the world. And we are receiving and walking in our calling as heirs to the throne, a priesthood of believers, carriers of the spirit. And we boldly declare that death will eventually be defeated, but we're already pushing back the dark. Each one of us who trusts Christ and is filled with the spirit lives for the kingdom now. Do we shrink back? Do we cower? Do we hide? Do we lie? Do we pretend that it doesn't exist? No, 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 and a thousand times no. But by the power of the Spirit, and by claiming the resurrection of Jesus together, we step into this. And lest lest I sound like I've got all this figured out, and you all need to, man, that's not the truth. You have inspired me to this ever since being a part of Cherry Hills, the way that we want to push into our city and transform it for the gospel. And I just say to us this morning, let's go. Let's keep going. Because Jesus is risen from the dead. And he's called us to it. And what better calling could there be? To impress someone? No. So I want to I give two ideas of how we walk this out. And then a final thought, and we're done. Okay, two ideas. Uh, John Ortberg's book, uh, Who Is This Man? It's really helpful to me in this study, as was N.T. Wright's um, Surprised by Hope. I'd recommend both of those resources to you, but I want to quote from Ortberg here. He says this. He says, the words Jesus said when he was resurrected were not, and now you have nothing to worry about. (laughs) They were not, And now you have a nice place to go when you die. He said nothing of the sort. He said, go. He said, friends, there's work to do. The poor you'll always have with you. The blind need sight. The captives need set free. The least of these are wanting. The world is groaning. Go. Hope got released when Jesus was resurrected. Bold, death-defying hope. Not hope that life would turn out well. Not hope that says, oh, it's all going to work out someday. Hope that called people to die. 
I was out uh, on the road. This had been over about a decade plus now, and I was with uh, some buddies of mine, and we had a day off. We were on business. And we were in a big city, and I was in a hotel, and uh, I woke up with a day off. I did morning prayer, and I felt this prompting to go out walking in the city. Can't describe it as anything else but a prompting, and look for uh, the least of these and just see if I could help them. And so I kind of like pushed it off. And I was, and, and no, God was saying, you should do this. So I didn't want to go by myself. So I walked down the hall to my buddy's room. And I said, hey, here's what's going on. And he decided to come with me. So we walk out the hotel. And uh, we're, we're in a big city, guys. Buildings everywhere. And out, we're looking for somebody to help. And we can't find anyone. It was crazy. Like, we're looking down back alleys and everywhere. And I'm just getting embarrassed. Like, I'm like, I'm so embarrassed. I guess I just, I can't hear... Uh, from the Lord. Can I buy you lunch? <laughs> I think that's literally how it went. And so we, we went to this Burger King and I, I bought him lunch and uh, in through the door walks this collegiate team, about 20 guys. Uh, they spread out, a small Burger King in a city, you know, and they spread out over the whole place and they're rowdy and they're loud and they're, and they're eating and, and, and we're eating and not like five minutes after they sit down, in the door walks this man. And he's missing an eye, and he has tattered clothes. And you can smell him throughout the entire restaurant. And he's muttering to himself, and he's carrying a whole bunch of junk, and he shuffles over to this side of the restaurant, and he sits down, and we're over there. I'll never forget it. And my buddy, who's sitting right there, goes... And I stood up and I walked across that restaurant and I still remember what I bought for him. He wanted a hamburger with salt on it and mustard. And we talked to him for a little while. And I died more in that walk across the restaurant than I died the whole day or week previous. And it was as if the Lord was saying to me, I have more for you to die of. I have more for you to let go of. I want you to die to your pride. I want you to die to your image and your ego. I want you to die to your comfort. Because if we want to see the kingdom come in our area of influence, we die. We die to these things. What are you holding on to that you're afraid to let die? What are you grasping tightly? The poor you'll always have with you. The blind need sight. The captives need set free. The least of these are wanting. The world is groaning. Go. Paul says this in the text. He says, I die every day. I die every day. Paul also knew his calling. We die every day. And we know our calling. Every letter he began, an apostle of Jesus Christ he said, called by the will of God. He said, by the grace of God, I am chosen to be a disciple to the Gentiles. He knew who he was. Several years ago, I wrote down in a journal what I felt God was calling me to. I wrote it down and I've gone back to it again and again and again. And it's not like he spoke in an audible voice, but he's spoken through a community. He's spoken through those who know me. He's spoken and put images in my mind. He's reminded me of who I am. And here's what I wrote down. 
And this, this is not to boast or anything. This is just, I go back to this. He says, you're a teacher, Chuck. He says, you're a teacher and a pastor. You're called to communicate the gospel in creative ways and disciple others. Your wife and kids first and then God, who God gives. You're faithful. You're funny. You're real. You have the spirit of David. And I come back to this again and again and again. Some seasons I come back to it more than others. And this week has been a great reminder for me that if we're going to do the work of the kingdom in this world, we got to know our calling. we got to know what he's called us to. Because it's going to get hard. So let me just speak your calling over you, your general calling, Cherry Hills. It's an honor to walk with you. You're a chosen people. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people of God's own possession, and you're called to proclaim the virtues of him in and throughout this city and this world. You're called to bring hope where there's no hope and light into darkness. Once you were not a people, but now you're a resurrection people. Once you were not a community, but now you're a force for the kingdom. You're a light in a dark world. We are those, listen, we are those who bless in the midst of turmoil, who confess when we hold a grudge, who forgive in the midst of pain, who cross ethnic barriers, who defend the rights of the vulnerable, who treat the overlooked with dignity, who hold on to hope in the face of death because the world is not moving towards hopeless end, but rather towards endless hope. The resurrection matters. The resurrection matters. And when it inspires us, when it gets deep down in us, when we believe it to our core, and we fall on our knees, like Thomas did, and we proclaim, my Lord and my God, and out of the overflow of that deep admiration and love for Jesus, we boldly bring the kingdom in the middle of the mess. That's what Jesus did. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.